This is Ovinology. Every hero has an origin story. Sheep are no different. And if there's two things humans have always loved, it's stories and sheep. So to borrow a word from my people, let's go back to Bereshit, the beginning. In the beginning was the wool. No, that's not right. Let's go back farther. Beginning, we were hungry. What did we eat, I hear you ask? Was it fields of proudly waving organic quinoa? Was it wild berries sweetened with cultivated sorghum? It was not. Mesolithic humans feasted on vast herds of mouflon, hunting them at nearly a three-to-one ratio in comparison to other available moderately-sized game. We wouldn't recognize these animals today. Ovis gemellini was much larger, hairier, and feistier than our modern sheep. We can most closely compare them to doll or bighorn sheep, but that's still kind of apples to bowling balls. We chased these nimble ruminants all over Mesopotamia with our slings and arrows of outrageous misfortune for them until we'd nearly wiped them out. Well, hey, if you love eating in an Outburgers or Taco Luchador three times a week, you're gonna do whatever it takes to keep the doors open, right? And that's exactly what we did about 10,500 years ago when science indicates that the mouflon population in Western Asia suddenly and sharply declined. Sheep, Ovis Aries, were probably domesticated at least three separate times in the Fertile Crescent, and that includes Western Iran, Turkey, Syria, and Iraq. This involved at least three different subspecies of the wild mouflon. Sheep were the first meat animals domesticated, and they were among the species translocated to Cyprus 10,000 years ago, along with goats, cattle, pigs, and cats. How did this happen? Good question. A couple of scientists named Larson and Fuller theorized the process by which a meat animal and human relationship shifts from wild prey to game management, like today's Fish and Wildlife Service, to herd management, when man became pastoral and settled, to selective breeding. But far from the touchy-feely tale of how wolves and humans befriended one another, see what I did there? Tail, tail, sheep and pigs and cows and goats were domesticated through a management program to protect a disappearing resource. Once we got our hands on them, we realized that sheep were more than a great rack of ribs. They could also provide dairy products, waterproof skins, vellum for writing when that became a thing, and lastly, wool. If you study that list, you'll notice that the most sustainable product was the last to be developed. That's because it took us a while to learn how to breed for desired traits like the downy undercoat mouflons only needed in cold weather. Other morphological changes resulting from domestication include reduction in body size, pulled, that's hornless, females, and demographic profiles that include large percentages of young animals. Wild herds left to self-govern tend to include more older animals and a roughly equal number of males and females. Once man took over, we decided to shrink the gene pool by selecting males with a propensity to pass on the traits most useful to us. Wild sheep had shorter, coarser fleece and colored wool that was harvested by ruing, plucking the old growth by hand as the new growth pushes it from the skin. Some breeds of sheep those labeled heritage, primitive, or land race, retain this quality. 
It took us 3,000 years to begin selectively breeding for wool quality. That was around 6,000 before Common Era, and another 3,000 years to work out breeding for white fleece sheep. That also occurred at ground zero, Mesopotamia, around 3,000 BCE. Remains of domestic sheep and knitting dating 7,000 years have been found in Iran, Iraq, and Palestine, while the earliest woven wool garments date back to 4,000 to 3,000 BCE. So first we wore hides, then lightened it up to knitted socks and sweaters, and finally got it together and built a loom. It would be another two to 3,000 years before we invented a spinning wheel. The Bible, in particular the Old Testament, or Torah, is a great source of historical documentation about sheep farming and textile production in that region. By the Bronze Age, 2300 to 600 BCE, sheep with characteristics similar to our modern breeds were widespread throughout Western Asia. Around the same time the Fertile Crescent published their first knitting pattern, domestic sheep entered northeastern Africa in several waves. Four types of sheep are known in Africa today, thin-tailed with hair, thin-tailed with wool, fat-tailed, and fat-rumped. As we'll see later on, fat-tailed sheep, they make the woolen world go round. North Africa boasts the untamed Barbary sheep, who don't appear to have been domesticated or to contribute to any modern variety, hence the lack of ovus in their title, Amotragus lervia. The earliest evidence of domestic sheep in Africa is from Nabda Playa, about 7700 BCE. Sheep are illustrated on early dynastic and Middle Kingdom murals dated about 4500 BCE. They appear in the archaeological record of Southern Africa by around 2270, and examples of fat-tailed sheep, there they are again, are found on undated rock art in Zimbabwe and South Africa. Several lineages of domestic sheep are found in modern herds in South Africa today, all sharing a common ancestry, probably from Ovis orientalis, possibly indicating a single domestication event. Around 55 BCE, the good old Romans swept over northern Europe, conquering the people and leaving sheep behind. The Romans had sheep production locked down, and why wouldn't they? I mean, they'd conquered the world. A series of classic Greek writings dated about 500 BCE describe in detail selective sheep breeding and wool processing, while Roman writings by a bunch of people honestly describe details about sheep breeding processes and wool textile productions, mentioning farms with as many as 10,000 sheep. Later, believe it or not, the Vikings would contribute to the European gene pool as they both pillaged and transported sheep on their voyages that spanned North America to Russia. In the Middle Ages, 476 to 1453, wool trading flourished in Europe with the Benelux countries, that's Belgium, Netherlands, and Luxembourg, Benelux, England, France, and Italy at the core. Spain and England became the superior producers, while the best processors were Italy and the Benelux. Italy remains the leading world processor of fine, see also merino, fleeces. Make no mistake, the development of wool sheep built these empires. England was in the business of futurities well before the notion of a stock market existed, selling the kingdom's wool clips years in advance when in need of funds, often to fight wars, often with other wool producer nations. Hmm. Spanish sheep were on board Christopher Columbus's 1492 voyage, America or bust and is considered to have introduced the ancestor of the Navajo Churro to the Americas. 
Now, it's 100% my personal feeling that such a speculation just won't shear. The Spanish's jealously guarded fine wool merino was introduced by Arabic Moors in the 12th century ACE and refined through crossbreeding with North African stock. So unless Columbus was toting land-raised long wools around the Seven Seas, that's kind of flocked up. In the 1600s, Cortez did introduce sheep and mustangs to Mexico and the Western United States. Before the 1700s, Selling merinos outside the Spanish Empire was punishable by death, but as the empire began its decline, the king started gifting them to Hungary, Germany, France, Portugal, and the Netherlands. The Dutch transported the breed to their South African colonies, and several Cape fat-tailed sheep were sold in 1788 to voyagers on their way to Australia. Captain John MacArthur is considered the most important figure in Australian wool. Why? Well, he understood the global marketplace of his day. By 1800, both fine Spanish wool and coarser British wool had strong competitors in Saxony and Silesia, who also produced high-quality merino wool. That's the danger of sharing your genetics. You save the breed by exporting it, but risk losing your competitive advantage when buyers begin their own improvement programs. The United States and Russia also obtained merinos from Spain and Portugal. In 1803 to 1804, Captain John lobbied the King of England to encourage selective breeding in Australia. And just six years later, Australia achieved the competitive edge they hold to this day. By 1810, Australia boasted over 30,000 merinos and together with the US and Germany formed a pillar of world fine trade centers. By 1840, that triangle had shifted to Australia, South Africa, and New Zealand. The rest of the world, including Spain, home of the OG Merino, focused on crossbred and coarser wool breeds. Parallel DNA and mitochondrial DNA studies of European, African, and Asian domestic sheep have identified three distinct lineages. They're called type A, or Asian, type B, European, and type C, which has been identified in modern sheep from Turkey and China. The earliest record of a European type B sheep in China dates to the Bronze Age. Fragments of teeth and bones at a few Neolithic sites are not intact enough to be identified as domestic versus wild. Two theories are that either domestic sheep were imported from Western Asia into China between 5,600 and 4,000 years ago, or independently domesticated from Ovis Ammon, or Uriel sheep, Ovis Vigni, about 8,000 to 7,000 years BCE. I can't speak to current animal production in China, but they've become the world leader in wool processing by volume. If you want fine fleece turned into the finest textiles, send it to Italy. But if you want to make socks or blankets at one of the last four wool mills in the United States, Send your raw wool to China, where they have no environmental or labor restrictions, and they'll send you back perfectly washed, carded, and mercerized roving for pennies on the American dollar. But that's a whole other story. All this history, anthropology, and science are great, but what does it all mean? For starters, it means the militant vegan slash PETA radicals are wrong. Like just yesterday, I saw someone on Twitter vehemently defend the much maligned sheep from us shepherds. Let me read you the exact quote. <clears throat> well, I love sheep, so I have to stand up for them. They have to live in captivity, not naturally, to be able to harvest their wool. 
There are so many factors at play when it comes to raising animals for eating or using their byproducts, especially quality of life, med care, and killing them. I'm not vegan. I submit this quote because it was recent and encapsulates most of a demographic that knows not of what they rant. The sheep that lived naturally, because not even today's wild sheep are the same as the three ancestors from which our modern sheep descend, could never function in our systems today. Likewise, our domestic sheep could not function in what that person considers natural life. They didn't have wool 11,000 years ago. It didn't need harvesting. Like it or not, we're responsible for animals we did not create. For that matter, we couldn't survive in the manner of our Mesolithic ancestors. Vegans definitely wouldn't make it because we were hunters, not farmers. Crop cultivation hadn't happened when we befriended other predators and corralled our primary food source. Those arguments are laughable. The domestication of sheep was probably the most transformative moment in the history of man. They made possible Viking voyages, Roman domination, settlement of arable plains, Cortez and Columbus's exploration of the New World, all of Judeo-Christian religious tradition, the reformation of the American West, and they sustained Britain as a world superpower for a thousand years. And, quite possibly, they're the key to a green future for this planet. Now here's where the podcast takes a hard left. In its old format, I used to do a weekly farm update at the end of every episode. Since ovinology is designed a little differently, I'm going to offer that as bonus content instead. Also, for you longtime listeners, the Ballyhoo Fiber Emporium episodes will remain free and available on the website at ballyhoofiberemporium.com slash podcast. I haven't taken anything down. I've been your host, Madeline Rosenberg. Special thanks to Dakota Armour, Lori Prestia, Matt Clegg, and Melissa Huffman for making this episode possible. I haven't quite figured out where the show notes are going to live because I'm dealing with a lot of new tech this time around, so please bear with me. If an ad-free podcast appeals to you, consider joining the Patreon at patreon.com slash ovinology. That's patreon.com slash O-V-I-N-O-L-O-G-Y. Tiers start at just a dollar a week and include benefits and bonus content. Plus, you're directly contributing to costs like hosting, paying our expert guests for their time, maintaining pricey audio equipment, and reaching goals that will help other artists around the world. Plus, it helps your karma. And, as if all that wasn't enough, studies in multiple species have shown that altruism, the act of giving, stimulates the reward and pleasure centers in your brain. And that's science. I don't have a sign-off catchphrase yet. If you'd like to suggest one, I'm eager to hear it. So this time, thanks for listening. Have a great week. And uh, find one way this week that you can be better to yourself.